time, you might say. And as he's traveling, he is teaching, he is performing miracles. The last scene ended with him in Bethany. He was at the home of Simon the leper. He was having a fellowship meal. And in addition to Christ Jesus being there, we had Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and his apostles. And as we have stated before, Bethany is very close to Jerusalem, roughly two and a half, three miles away. So not only was he there having a fellowship meal, but he was also very close to his enemies, his enemies who wanted to kill him, his enemies who were waiting for him in Jerusalem. Would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you, Father, and we thank you so very much for this wonderful day and this wonderful opportunity. An opportunity, Father, to to learn from your word, Father, to help us grow in our walk of faith. An opportunity, Father, to help us continue our preparation for the end of time. And Father, we know because of the hope that we have, Father, we have a blessed expectation that one day when this world ends, we will enjoy an eternity in heaven with you. And Father, for that day we look forward to, for that day we're thankful for. Father, thank you for blessing us and loving us and being with us each and every day of our lives as you guide us via the Holy Spirit. These things are praying. Thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So section six, when we look at it, what we're going to find is this. It's going to cover a period. It's going to be broken down rather into six days. We're going to be looking at things that happen, let's say, from day one that we're going to call Sunday, April 2nd. We're going to look at the events that take place during that time up to through six days. So we start with day one. Day one being Sunday, and we're going to go ahead and put a date on that. We're going to call it April 2nd. Uh, this is where we, in, we encounter the 119th event. Now, as we know from, from studying uh, God's word over a period of time, we know that those who came to Jerusalem for the Passover, most of the time they walked. And Christ Jesus was no different. During those times he ventured into Jerusalem for the Passover, he walked as well. But this time he does something a little bit differently. He does something a little bit differently in that he sends his apostles to get a donkey for him to ride as is prophesied in Isaiah 62 at verse 11 as well as Zechariah 9 at verse 9. This was to show not only his divine messianic role, but also the humility of the Christ. But when we think about think back about the Romans and how they, not the Romans, the Jews, and how they were looking at things. They were hoping for this worldly savior too, but their mindset was that he would come in riding a horse, not a donkey. So as Christ Jesus arrived, the crowd cries out, Hosanna, which means, oh, save. It was an expression of adoration. And as he was arriving, they laid out cloaks and branches as a mark of respect and honor for him. The crowds that, uh, uh, that witnessed him coming into Jerusalem, they were excited. But then he arrives at the temple. He arrives at the temple, and there he finds no welcoming. He finds no honor for him. He finds no belief from the leaders And as a result, he mourns the judgment that's not only coming upon the city of Jerusalem, but also coming upon the nation as a whole because of this. So after that day, he returns to Bethany to spend the night. Which brings us to day two, Monday, 
May, April 3rd. So Jesus, we find he cursed the fig tree and he also cleansed the temple. But let's go back to the fig tree. In cursing the fig tree, after he had come to it and there were no figs there for him, we find that this is a, a living parable that reflects what has taken place there in Jerusalem when Jesus arrived. We found that the people there, they had nothing to offer him. So let's stop for a moment. What do you suppose the people were supposed to offer him, or what do you suppose Christ Jesus were, was expecting the people to offer him? Yes. Okay. So what should have happened? There you go. They should have been praising his name. They should have been offering praise. They should have been offering faith. So just as the fig tree will wither and die then, so will this nation. On the second visit... Jesus also chases a merchant and animals out of the temple. Now, this is the second time that this has happened. It's interesting that when he started his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, he chased the merchants and animals out of the temple. And as he is ending his ministry, he chased the merchants and animals out of the temple. So once again, he returns to Bethany for the night. We venture to day three. Now, day three is going to be busy. Day three is going to be busy for him. Day three, Tuesday, April 4th. My birthday. Hmm. Event 121. We talked about the withering fig tree, but what is the lesson from it is the point here. So Jesus returns to the temple the very next day with his disciples and they pass by this this cursed fig tree and see that it is completely withered overnight. Jesus' lesson on this is that with faith, all things are possible. The alteration of nature is not too hard for him. Whether Whether it's a withering tree or whether it's casting a mountain into the sea, both of these things are equally easy for him. What unleashes spiritual power, we're told, is faith. And if the apostles had faith, they will do greater things. And what we will see is that they did indeed do greater things. They witnessed the resurrection of Christ Jesus. They, they themselves performed mighty miracles. They themselves raised people from the dead. Still on day three. Oops, I believe I hit the button one too many times. Josh, I'm frozen. Hmm. Okay, I'm frozen, Josh. Did it move? Okay, thank you. So... You know, Josh, I may have to go without this 
because uh, there we go. <laughs> ah, whew. Okay, event 122, still on day three. So Jesus finds himself teaching in the temple. Now, as we said earlier, it is Passover week, and there are large crowds in Jerusalem. So Jesus, and the teaching that he is going to bring about, is bound to stir up the people. So the Jewish leaders, what do they do? They try to neutralize him. And the way they do this is they always want to confront him in crowds because they're hoping they can get him to say the wrong thing. So they challenge his authority, first of all, uh, to casting out the money changers. And his reply is very simple. He asked them what they believe concerning John the baptizer. Now remember, again, these confrontations are taking place in front of large crowds. They're staged to be in front of large crowds. because, and, But at the same time, the leaders were sensitive to what the people heard. So as far as John was concerned, if they said he was a prophet, Christ Jesus had a simple question for them. Then why didn't you obey him? If they rejected John openly, what would the crowds do? The crowds would reject them. Why? Because the crowd believed that John was a prophet. And in the end, what did the people do? They said nothing. They claimed ignorance. So to this, Christ Jesus responds with three parables. First the one, the parable of the two sons. The father, as we remember, asked the two sons to do something. One says, yes, I'll do it, and doesn't. The other says, no, I won't do it, and does. The point of the parable here is to show that the Jewish leaders were charged with the duty that they accepted, but they didn't fulfill it. Those that had previously disobeyed and neglected the task, the sinners and the Gentiles, if you will, one day they would obey they would obey the father in their place parable 2 the parable of the landowner Jesus describes here the wicked vine growers who refuse to pay their dues to the landowner they would reject they would kill all those who would come to collect the rent even the landlord the landowner's son so finally Jesus predicts that the landowners will be eventually the landowner will eventually come and punish them again the target is those Pharisees those leaders parable number three the parable of the marriage feast so the king prepares a feast, but none of his guests wants to come. They even beat and kill the messenger sent to invite them. The king destroys these in order to have the wedding feast for his son. He invites the poor. He invites the homeless to be his guests. He invites them to wear the wedding guest garment and enjoy the feast. When it comes to God for us, what garment are we expected to wear? What garment are we expected to wear? I'm sorry. 
we should be clothed with Christ. That is correct. The one who refuses to wear the offered garment is cast into is cast out of the feast, I should say. The parables were directed again at the religious leaders who were being publicly rebuked by Jesus. Why? For their disbelief in him as the Messiah. And as a result, they desire to kill him. Still, day three, event 123, Christ Jesus is there in the temple, and he is, you might say, entertaining questions, if you will. So, the questions that came to him, the first question was from the Pharisees and the Herodians, and it was concerning taxes. Once the priests had failed to destroy his credibility, the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, a group that supported Herod and, 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 and power that he had, and they feared that Christ Jesus was going to do something to inter- interrupt this power, they tried to challenge him by asking him if it was in accordance with God's law to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, think about taxes at this time, especially from the Jewish people, because they were subjects of Rome, and they really didn't like these so-called poll taxes at all. So if Jesus said, yes, he will alienate his followers, and, and those who hated Roman authority would, would be against him, let's face it. If he said no, he would be accused of insurrection. It might say, you can't win for losing in this particular case. But Christ Jesus had an answer. He simply answers the tax question but like this. He said, he first wanted to know whose face was on the coin, and it was that of Caesar. So he said very clearly, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but then render unto God that which is God." So God clarified this. He clarified this, again, very simple for them. And, it, and so in saying the things that he said, he is implying here that what belongs to God should not be given to Caesar, and what belongs to Caesar should not be given to God. So today we pay taxes. <laughs> so today we pay taxes, but we also have our contributions weekly. And we, some might say, well, whose picture is on the money? Dead presidents, of course. But God blesses us with monies, and God expects us to give back from that which he blesses us with. That belongs to God. So the second question comes from the Sadducees, and this is concerning the resurrection. Now, before I go farther here, we have two questions now. One from the Pharisees and the Rodians, one from the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Rodians were asking about taxes. The, Sa- the Sadducees is asking about the resurrection. What is the difference bet- in the nature of these two questions? What is the difference in the nature of these two questions, do you think? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Very good. That is exactly it. Now, you can word it another way. The first question is political in nature, which is the same thing. The other is theological or spiritual in nature, same thing. So with the Sadducees, the thing with them is they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. So they also rejected miracles, and they did not accept the books of the prophet as authoritative. What they did was they adhered to or adhered to the Pentateuch. 
That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they present Jesus with really a foolish question about seven brothers who end up marrying the same woman, and they ask Christ Jesus, whose wife will he be in heaven? And you think about that question for a moment. The question was really meant to mock the idea of a resurrection. So Jesus shows them a couple of things. He shows them that, that their disbelief and errors, that they are based on the misunderstanding of the very text that they said they accepted. He showed that in Exodus 3 at verse 6, God referred to himself as the one who cared for men who were long dead. Now, what does this mean? This meant that these men continued to exist before him in some form. This proved the concept that life after death, rather, this proved the concept of life after death from their own text. And God, and that God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also gives them insight that only God would know. And I remember a long time ago, shortly after I became a Christian, a gentleman asked me that, this very question. He said, I've been married twice, and which wife am I going to be with in heaven? <laughs> so I, I took him to this text and explained to him that that is not the way heaven works. You don't have condominiums set up for you and your wives. Uh, and he appreciated it. Uh, so what he was teaching them was that men do not have wives in heaven. Why? Because they are like the angels in nature. We're spiritual. Not only does he answer their question on their own terms, but he reveals their ignorance also concerning this matter. The next question comes from the lawyers. It's a question about the greatest commandment. Now, the Jews, some of them were very pious and often repeated the Shema. The Shema we find in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. When your lawyers ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He repeats the Shema to them. But he adds text also from Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He does this to show that loving God is not only demonstrated in ceremony and temple worship. Loving God is not only demonstrated in our coming here to worship service, to Bible study and to worship services and so forth. But it's also how we go about the business of loving others as well, including ourselves. Our love towards God has an impact on the world only when we love others in the name of God. He wanted us to understand that as well as them. So the lawyers agree with Jesus. They agree with Jesus, and the Lord tells them that he is not far from the kingdom. And what is missing, of course, was faith in him as Messiah. That is the only thing that's missing. But Jesus... He decides, I'm going to ask a question. I've answered your questions. Now it's my turn. 
So as his adversaries have asked all of their questions, he asked them a question concerning the scriptures and what they teach about the Messiah. You see, their concept of the Messiah was that he would be a descendant of David, the great King David, and much like David, would bring the nation to political and economic greatness. Jesus corrects this idea by showing them that from Scripture that David himself described the Messiah as a divine being coming in the form of man through David's lineage. Psalm 110, verse 1, how did David write it? The Lord said to my Lord. The Jews understood the implications of this, that Jesus claimed not only to be the Messiah, but Jesus also claimed to be the divine Messiah. And as a result, they were silenced, not venturing to say another word. From this, From this, Christ Jesus brings a warning. This is his last warning to them. Once he has finished teaching, once he has finished responding to all of them, Jesus rebukes the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. He reviles them for their pride. What is their pride? They wanted the honor of men instead of the honor of God. He reviled them for their hypocrisy. What is their hypocrisy? They say one thing, but they do another. He reviled them for their legalism. No grace of God in their teaching. It was all about them. And finally, he reviled them for their, dis- their disbelief. They killed the prophets sent by God. He condemns them and mourns over the city that has rejected him. And because of this, this city will suffer destruction. Now, we're still on day three. Event 124. Not all the Jews were, were like the leaders that Christ Jesus was dealing with. If we had to describe the attitude of the leaders, what were some of the words that would come to mind? I'm sorry. Pride. Anyone else? Anything other than pride? Jealous. Okay, all right. All right. So then, that was good. Thank you, Terry. So not all Jews were like the leaders. Those leaders were greedy, they were unbelieving, and they were proud. And Jesus commends the love and generosity of this poor widow who gives all that she had as an offering in order to show her faith and trust in God. This scene is described to show the tremendous difference between the humble and acceptable servant of God who had little but gave a lot versus those who rejected God who had, uh, who had been given much but they returned nothing. Still on day three. The final group coming to the final group coming to seek Jesus were Greek converts to Judaism who had they got had little respect from the Jews in other words. 
their eagerness to see and hear him prompts Jesus to offer a prayer. And I think about this. He had been listening to these strives, these Pharisees, these Sadducees all of this time, but at no time do we hear how their faith and their belief and their, their willingness and desire to be there, how it prompted Christ Jesus to pray. But he did. And in his prayer, he predicts his death again, but he also predicts the, the fruit that it will bear as he is resurrected or when he is resurrected. And we're told that after the prayer, he hears a voice from heaven answering his prayer to glorify God's name. And he also encourages the crowd. He encourages the crowd to believe and he warns them. He warns them of the consequences of not doing so. So after addressing the general crowd, he again leaves the temple. Still on day three. So, you know, normally we read when Christ Jesus goes off to a place to do some teaching privately, he takes three people with him, Peter, James, and John. This time, he takes Andrew with him as well. They go outside the city so that he can go about the business of teaching them what will come. He's going to teach them what will come. See, in, in these long verses of Scripture that, he's, that we can read about him teaching them, he is te- we find that he is teaching them about the near future, which is the end of the Jewish nation with the destruction of the city and the temple by Rome in, 80, in 70 AD, as well as an event in the distant future, which would be the end of the world at his second coming. What we find is that there are some who, even today, I believe, interpret these, uh, inter- want to interpret these passages as exclusively the end of the world scenarios. I remember used to, when I was little and I used to watch these televangelists and stuff like that, and there was always somebody showing something that's showing this is going to be the end of the world, and they were re- referring to, it could have been to Matthew 24 or some other scripture. However, Jesus specifically mentions that these things would happen to the present generation. We see this in Matthew 24, verse 34. So it's helpful if we realize that this passage has three historical viewpoints. Viewpoint number one, which we see in Matthew 24, verses 14 through, uh, 4 through 14, we see a panorama of world history that includes the present time when Jesus is speaking, the near future uh, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the end of the world at Jesus' return. Jesus also telescopes two events leading to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which we see at 15 through 35 of chapter 24 of Matthew. And then he telescopes again to his second coming at the end of the world, verses 36 through 42. All of this is done for a reason. It is done to prepare his disciples for the near 70 A.D. and the distant end of the world future. Still on day three, the last parables that Christ Jesus presents to, to, to the world there. So having given his final teaching, having given his final warning to the Jews, along with the preparation of his apostles concerning the end of the Jewish state, Jesus goes on to tell them parables concerning the good man in the house, the wise and evil servants, the ten virgins, 
the talents, the sheep, and the goats. All of these have a similar theme. If you ever, I'm not going to ask anybody if they ever read all of those. But if you've read all of those and actually thought about them, what was being said, this is what he's doing. He's telling them that we do not know when the judgment is coming, but we must be ready at all times for the final judgment. We do not know when the judgment is coming, but we must be ready at all times for the final judgment. Which takes us to event 28. So, what is to come? If we would kind of put a timeline on where we are right now, this is the end of day three. It is in the neighborhood of 6 p.m. in the evening. And and officially, the next day has begun because it's after 6 p.m. And so on the following, so as the following day emerges then, we see the Lord continuing to teach. We see him continuing to train his apostles. Event 128, Judas plots to betray Jesus. So we can tell from this event that took place on day three that Christ Jesus has some really, really, really serious rebuke of the Jewish leaders. And as a result of this, they agreed to kill Jesus as soon as the Passover is over. Why? They, why do they want the Passover to be over? They want less people around because they don't want to see how the crowd will react if it's a really a lot of people. They want people to be out of town. They don't want to see large groups of people rioting. So Judas plays into their hand by doing what? He comes to them at this precise moment with a plan to betray our Lord, and they agree to it. In the meantime, the writers say that the crowds were still undecided on who they believed Jesus was. Many leaders believed, but they were afraid to acknowledge this fact openly. So what does Jesus do? He pronounces judgment on all of these by saying that his words will judge them in the end meaning how they reacted to his teaching will judge them before God. So, concerning the end times, what lessons can we draw from this? From this lesson today, concerning the end times, what two lessons can we draw from this? I'm sorry, what's that? Obedience. What would be the result of obedience? Mm-hmm. Okay, all right.
All right. Thank you. So obedience. The word of God, I'm paraphrasing, the word of God is, is, is complete and exact. And if we are not obedient to it, we will, well, we will be judged according to it, whether we're obedient or disobedient. Uh, that's why we have the parable of the sheep and the goat. So thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, As we see these things come about, the day of the Lord warns us, be ready, which means we need to examine ourselves. Thank you, Steve. Everybody. Everybody's got to face judgment. We don't know when it's going to occur. We have to be ready. Anyone else? Lesson one, there will be an end. There will be an end. The Jewish leaders refused that there would be an end to their nation as Jesus has predicted. And history, history shows two things. They were terribly and they were tragically mistaken. Jesus has also predicted the end to our world. And how to be ready for that. What can we do? We can learn from the mistakes of those leaders back then. We can learn from their mistakes and believe Jesus when he warns us about this. Because if we don't, on that day of judgment, we would be just like those in AD 70. Terribly and tragically mistaken. I used to hear a preacher say, you know, on the day of judgment, it would be a sad thing when a person say, why didn't you warn me? From lessons I've heard that Tony has brought and I've listened to other lessons as well, if we have not lived our life accordingly <laughs> when we pass from this life, we will be saying that way before the day of judgment. <laughs> because when we read about the rich man and Lazarus, we saw where Lazarus was and we saw where the rich man was. And I remember talking to a brother one day. He said it must have been really bad that he was delusional that where he would think just a drop of water on the tip of someone's finger on his tongue would cool him off. He must have been delusional. But we would know way before then. We, pass, we pass from this life today and the world on end for another thousand years. If we have been living our lives according to God's word or not living our lives according to God's word, we would know in a short period of time where we're going to spend an eternity. And we will not be standing before asking somebody the question, why didn't you tell me about this? <laughs> we need to be asking that question now. Are you telling me about this and am I listening? Number two, his word will judge. You know, today is Mother's Day, right? I love parents. I had them. (laughs) I love parents. 
there was times when I was little, they didn't think I could do nothing wrong. Then I grew up, and they went, ooh, this boy's bad. <laughs> but anyway, but, but parents, a lot of times, they, they, would, they want us to be good about stuff. They always tell us how good we are, even when we're wrong sometimes, or telling other people how good we are, even when we're not. But you know what? Parents are not going to be one judging us on the day of judgment. You know, you can, you can go down to the courthouse and say, you can look through all the records, you don't see James' name any place in there except on a visitor's log. James must have been a good guy. But the law is not going to judge me. I can sit back and tell myself how great I am in the eyes of God. I'm, I'm a legend in my own mind, if you will, when it comes to God's word. I can tell myself that. But that's not going to judge me. The final judge would be the New Testament. The final judgment judge would be the word of God. How we react to Jesus' words will determine what happens to us in the end. X amount of seconds after death, we will know. We will know. The sheep will be the ones who follow Jesus' words. The goats would be the ones who didn't think that the words of Christ Jesus, they didn't think that they were worth believing. They didn't think that they were important. They didn't think that they were worth obeying. What is the purpose of Bible study? What is the purpose of worship service? We're here. What is the purpose of Bible study? To learn the word of God. Anybody else? To learn the word of God, what was said, just the microphone. I, they didn't hear you, but I did make sure they did. To learn the word of God. Anybody else? To what? To keep people in line with the will of God? Yeah. Yeah. To do to le- to learn to do the will of God's um, the will of God's word. Anyone else? I'm sorry. Okay, now. For correction because sometimes we misunderstand. So, to close it out then, our Bible study is not simply an exercise in learning. Our worship service is not an exercise in learning. Our Bible studies and our worship service is an act, is also, I should say, an act of preparation for the end. We come here to hear these words because we are preparing for the end and we want to make sure we're doing the right things. We come to worship service, preparation for the word. Yes, we are instructed to do these things, but... Don't forget about the preparation aspect. Because if we forget about the preparation aspect for the end, all we're doing is punching a clock. I was at Bible study. I was at worship service. I was at Bible study. I was at worship service. I was at, but are we getting what we need preparation as we prepare for the end? That's the thing. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And, oh, I had one other question, but I may not have time. I'm going to throw it out there right, right real quick. Why would Jesus teach us about the end of the world but not tell us when it will occur? Any thoughts on that? 
He teaches about the end of the world, but he won't tell us when. So we'll live ready. All right. I love it. Thank you. So we'll live ready. That's it. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for being here today. And I look forward to next week when we venture into uh, Lesson 12. Uh, The reading for Lesson 12 is on the table in the foyer. Thank you.